Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. Thank you for the, the invitation. I'm, I'm trying to summarize in this um, less than one hour or so uh, some of the work we have been done in the last two decades, probably, um, with the, the use of epithelial stem cells. As you can see here, you see these colonies. They are the colonies are made by clonogenic keratinocytes, no matter whether you isolate them from skin, from the cornea, from the conjunctiva. Those are clonogenic keratinocytes, each colony being the progeny of a single clonogenic cell. Eventually, uh, this colony will grow and will fuse. And once they, they do that, they generate in vitro a cohesive sheet of uh, an epithelium. In this case, you see is uh, an epidermis that's been grown on plastic. More recently, uh, also thanks to the original work of Yammer and Don a few years ago, uh, we grow these cells for clinical purposes, just for clinical purposes, on uh, fibrin support uh, that makes the life uh, of surgeons actually uh, much, much easier. Now, these cultures originally developed uh, in the 80s by Howard Green in Harvard. Uh, in, in, in those days, I was in his lab. Uh, has been used for many years for uh, clinical application in skin burns. And this is already history. Today, I'm going to focus on two clinical applications that, that we developed in the last years. One is a cell therapy application for the ocular burns. Uh, we'll dedicate a little bit of time, but most of the time is dedicated to the gene therapy of this disease called epidermalizing process. So let me just summarize uh, the work that we have done on the ocular burns that has been uh, developed in these years by um, specifically and mostly by Graziella Pellegrini. We have been working uh, together since over 30 years and in collaboration initially with uh, uh, Panorama, who is a, a corneal pathologist at the San Rafael Hospital in Milan. And uh, <clears throat> make a very long story, very short. I mean, our ocular surface covered by the cornea and the conjunctiva. This area is called the limbs. Now, in the, in the, in the basal layer of this uh, uh, um, rim of epithelium, called the limbus, are located the stem cells of the corneal epithelium. That are these uh, cells here. Uh, we have devoted a lot of time in, in, in uh, the work in uh, characterizing these human limbal stem cells. Uh, we showed that they've been located in the limbus. We've shown that their proliferative regenerative potential is regulated specifically by a transcription factor uh, called delta N pcc 3 alpha and, and together with another transcription factor, CDP delta, 
that can regulate their cell renewal. Now, uh, these stem cells that generate the progenies, blue cells that are progenitors that made up the corneal epithelium. If we have a burr in the ocular surface that affect the cornea, but not the limbus, then the limbus gets activated and is able to regenerate the corneal surface, the corneal epithelium. However, if we have a, a, a severe burn in, in, in the eye where we have destruction of both the cornea and the limbus, the conjunctival cells will take over, will cover the ocular surface, will, will take the vessels like this, because you remember that the cornea is not vascularized directly. And what we have, what is called a corneal opacification. In this case, where we have corneal and limbal destruction, the corneal transplantation that usually is a surgical procedure that can be used for lesions where the limbus is preserved, cannot be applied because we have no enough stem cells to cover the graft. So it is very difficult clinical situation. Now, this is the eyes I'm talking about. You see, this is a complete opacification. There is a, a, basically a limbus and cell deficiency. There is a pandus. These patients, they have visual loss, obviously, but they have also severe symptoms in corneal opacification. During the years, what we have developed for unilateral lesion, but also for bilateral lesion, is the possibility, starting from a very, very small limbal biopsy, about one millimeter, to identify those stem cells, and we we'll go back to the, to the different chronotypes at the end of my talk, to regenerate uh, the, the, the corneal epithelium, to transplant the corneal epithelium, which has been regenerated in vitro, onto this area. How? I'm going to show you the surgical procedure, which, which is not a very pleasant movie. So for those of you that, that don't like surgery or they are quite sensitive to uh, surgical images, be aware that it's not, it's not a pleasant movie. This is the biopsy, about one millimeter biopsy that is taken from the, uh, from the LTI. And this is the, the biopsy from where we grow these cells. Uh, what the surgeon now, what Panorama is doing now, is to remove, you know, these panels, to remove this conjunctivalized epithelium and to expose the corneal stroma. Onto this corneal stroma, then we can transplant the uh, limbal cultures uh, that eventually will engraft and will regenerate the corneal surface. The clinical results that you can get with this uh, technology is the following. You see, those are eyes that I was referring to, completely opacified, vascularized, uh, with severe symptom loss of vision. In this case, for instance, you can see here there is a, a, the sign of a keratoplasty that failed, that failed because there was not enough stem cells there. But once you regenerate the, the entire physiology of the, of the cornea, that's what you get. You have a complete, total restoration of the cornea with no vascularization anymore. The cornea gets transparent. In the very long term here, 
those are eyes at 10 years follow-up, but now we have over 20 years follow-up, and you have a full recovery of visual activity. And you can do that also when you have bilateral lesions. Uh, about 15% of these patients, they have bilateral lesions. That is a much more severe situation because this patient, these patients are basically blind. This, for instance, is the case of a, a young man that received alkaline burning, both eyes, and uh, he gets lots of cornea transplantation and fail because of the lack of the limb stem cells. But this area of the limb was quite good. So from one small biopsy, we were able to grow both, uh, um, both grafts, and, and this is the full recovery of both eyes in these patients with full recovery of visual acuity. These patients were, was not able to drive or to work, and now is running a normal life. This is basically all I wanted to say about this, because it's all published. Um, I want to mention that uh, uh, after many years of application, uh, we were able to get a formal approval by the European Medicine Agency, by EMA, so at least in Europe, of this advanced therapy with the name of Oroclar since February 2015. And right now we are collaborating with uh, many countries in Europe for the uh, application of this therapy. Actually, the main reason why I wanted to show this is that what I'm going to show from now on, so all the gene therapy is not coming out of the blue, but is uh, coming from many years of uh, uh, work, both on the basic biology of epithelial stem cells and on the what we have learned in terms of cell therapy and in terms of tissue regeneration. So it's only after all this is completed that we can really think of modifying genetically those cells to make to, to, it with a gene therapy approach. And in our field, there is a really devastating disease, devastating, which is called uh, epidermolysis bullosa, the butterfly children disease. For those that are not aware of this disease, which is very rare, it's, it's a genetic disease, our epidermis is uh, attached to the underlying dermis through these black structures, which are called epidesmosomes, with the basal lamina, those are the epidesmosomes. It is a chain of protein starting from the keratins in the basal keratinocytes, mainly keratin 5, keratin 14, that, that are the interaction with the specific integrin and the uh, epidesmosome, which is called integral alpha 6 metaphor, that gets in touch with the laminin 5, also known as laminin 332, uh, that in turn gets in, uh, um, in, 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 it is connected to the collagen 7 uh, anchoring fibers in the dermis. This is how our epidermis is kept in place. Now we can make mutation in each of the gene coding for these proteins. If we have mutation in keratin 5 and keratin 14 in the simplex form, the blistering, the disruption of the junction occurs within the epidermis. So within the epidermis, and usually those simplex forms are dominant, but they are, in general, they are less severe than junctional and dystrophic, and they tend to get better during time, although there are also severe forms of simplex EB. 
The most severe forms are the junctional in the dystrophy. In the junctional form, mutations are usually in one of the three chain of the heterotrimer laminate 5 or the alpha 6 beta 4 integrin or collagen 17. And as you can see here, the blister is within the, the lamina lucida of the basal membrane. So here we have a detachment of the entire epidermis and we have bad blisters. Uh, if the dystrophic type, the lesion is more deep, so it's below the, lab, the basal lamina and the superficial dermis, and because it is due to the, to the mutations in the collagen cell. The disease is devastating because these patients, they are born with, uh, with blisters, of, usually in the generalized form, they are born with blisters all over the place, all over the body, spontaneous blistering or upon minimal trauma. So their quality of life is very, very bad. Think about that about 40% of patients with the generalized junctional in me, they die before the age of 18. Some of the patients, they, they have a double knockout mutation, for instance, in the beta-3 chain of laminate 5, they die within the first few months of life. Those patients, they, they get to adulthood, so they, 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 the mutations that allow them to survive, they have a very, very poor quality of life, and also short life expectancy because they have squamous cell carcinoma. There are many uh, palliative therapies that can be used or medications to try to, to somehow control these lesions. Um, but the real, the real breakthrough could be a, a gene therapy, so the, the, the genetic correction of, of the disease. Many years ago, Many years ago, we did a, the first phase one of these two clinical trial ever, ever made on the junctional EB, uh, on the patients that have mutations in the uh, lamb 3 gene of the heterotrimer using retromeral vectors. And those genetically corrected uh, epidermal sheet were transplanted on the upper legs of this patient. And as you can see, at uh, now are 16 years follow-up, uh, the epidermis, the skin of the species has been completely restored. And uh, uh, as you can see, uh, uh, here the epidermis is transgenic, as you can see from this in-situ immunization. And uh, the expression of laminate phi was very low, if any, at admission. And after the transplantation of transgenic skin, you see there is normal expression of laminate 5. So there was a first proof of principle that, that, that the ex vivo gene therapy could be done. And at that time, we were ready to treat more area of this patient and more patients. But we had to stop all our activities, the cornea and the gene therapy, because meanwhile, in Europe, all the regulation for advanced therapy changed completely. With the new regulation, the regulation number 1397 of the European community, uh, that was considering this something that could not be done as we done before at an academic level, but there were drugs. So we have to have a GMP facility, we have to have a GMP certified facility, we have to go through formal phase two, one, two, three. Um, uh, clinical trials, 
And at the time, we don't have any of these things. So we have to stop to build up a new building, to have a GMP certification. We have dedicated much time at the beginning. We have to create a biotech company, understand, because our, uh, I mean, the university is not able to follow these rules that are made for pharmaceutical companies. And initially, uh, uh, all of uh, was dedicated to, to the cornea because the cornea was uh, the, 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 the therapy that was ready to go onto the market. So we were, we were able to, to start our gene therapy only in 2015, after nine years. And what we did in collaboration with John Bauer in, the, in Salzburg, in Salzburg in the University, was to reproduce what we have done with Claudio, with his, his first patient, this time under GMP condition. And as you can see here, this is uh, a large area with uh, junctionally B due to lambda 3 mutations, exactly as Claudio. And there was, a rest there was not healing since 10 years, and it was completely restored by the transplantation of the transgenic skin. So at this time, we were able to start our trial again. But something happened to us, to us that changed completely our strategy. You know, phase one, then stop, make phase two, then stop. What happened to us with the story of that you probably know of this kid, Hassan, that was a seven, is a seven years old boy at the time, was a seven years old boy with a very severe form of junctional TB. Uh, due to uh, the homozygous mutation in intro 14 of the line between G. Uh, this kid was living in Syria. Uh, so under the civil war, a patient with junction B cannot be treated. You know, very difficult situation for a patient with a very fragile skin. So the family moved to Lebanon. But the situation of the kid was getting worse. So through humanitarian uh, organization, they, they uh, moved to Germany as refugees. Um, the kid was admitted to a dermatology department in, in Germany, but meanwhile, he had a super infection of Pseudomonas serruginosa staphylococcus aureus. So instead of having the blisters that come and go in the skin, Azan was losing the skin completely. So they have to move the skin to a burn unit because the amount of skin loss was too big. And he was admitted to the birth center uh, in Bochum in Germany. And I have to tell that all the, the, the clinicians there, they try their best to set the light on the skin using all the tools they have for burn patients. But as I was not a burn kid, it was a genetic disease. So all the, the therapy failed. So meanwhile, he was in deep sedation, so in new coma for few months, about four or five months. He was in critical condition. The prognosis was very poor. So they called us to see whether we could include Azan into the clinical trial. It was not possible because he did not have any of the inclusion criteria to be included in a phase one or phase two clinical trial. So what we decided to do was to ask the German regulatory Authorities for a compassionate use. And I have to say that 
the regulatory authorities in Germany, they gave us an answer in three weeks. So very fast, they said, okay, try and go ahead. So what we did was to take a four centimeter square biopsy and to generate about one square meter of transgenic epidermis. It was a very difficult task because we, it was the first time that we make such an amount of epidermis, try to control, after gene correction, try to control it, the right balance, and that would be back to this, between the stem and the progenitus. And uh, uh, we did this, uh, we transplanted this transgenic skin in two big operations. One operation uh, was done for the four limbs, and the second operation, one month later, for the entire back. This is the preparation of the movement where you expose the dermis, and then is the application of the grafts. And let me show you what happened. This is the left arm, you see, completely covered by the grafts, and by 10 days, two weeks, at the removal of the basilic nose, at the removal of the bandages, you see how nice is the new epidermis that engrafted and took. And for me, it was a very, I have to tell you, very strong emotion to see how nice was the epidermis in this difficult situation. And by one month, the entire arm was covered by new form epidermis. Same thing was for the left leg. You see the left leg was transplanted. And by 10 days, two weeks, one month was completely covered of skin. The same thing was for the right leg. Here we had a problem for of bleeding. So as you can see at one month, we have total regeneration of the epidermis, but in this area where we have bleeding, so we have to go back with some more, more grafts in these areas. But by transplanting the four limbs, the situation of the kid was much better. So he was reacting by covering his skin. So one month later, we were still in coma, actually, in induced coma. Uh, that was, by one month later, we transplanted the back. Look how bad was the situation of the back. But the work that Tobias Hirsch, the surgeon, did for the preparation of the, of the wood bed was excellent because, as you can see, here you have this quite nice receiving bed for the grafts with this, this, this dermis. This is the application of the grafts. And by one month, you see the entire back of Azana was covered by skin. We did not have a good take in the buttocks. And is a problem that we historically had also with the bird. For some reason, the engraftment in the, in the buttocks is not very good. But you see there are islands of keratinocytes here. So we, what we did was we just let the cells do their job and keep changing the medication. By four months, the entire pack was covered by epidermis. So the bottom line of the story that Azar was admitted with a very poor prognosis uh, in the hospital and uh, in June 2015, and before Christmas, he was out of the coma. He was discharged from the hospital in February 2016. Uh, and it was the, um, uh, the uh, visit he did in, in Modena in 2017. There was a president that was more Ferrari that we gave to us. You know, Modena is the town of Ferrari. And one month, uh, one, one year later, so in March 2017, you see the regeneration of the epidermis. Uh, every single biopsy we took uh, four months, eight months, uh, two years, you, you see that the, the 
incentivization is positive, so it's entirely transgenic in the epidermis. This is the absence of a laminate fine in the mitochondrial chain at admission. This is the way it's supposed to be the normal control. And you see the expression of normal amount of laminate fine in every single biopsy we took. And by transmission microscopy, you can see that we have a normal number structure of epidesmosomes. So this is why Azan now is running a normal life. This is his appearance at three-year follow-up. Uh, this is his appearance at four, five years follow-up. Uh, the area that we have not transplanted, because we transplanted about 80% of his body, but about 20% was not transplanted. They are still making blisters, but all the transplanted area has been regenerated. And even after five years, that for the for the skin is a very long-term follow-up. We change, we renew our epidermis every couple of months. So five years follow-up is a very long time because of the renewal. Uh, again, uh, the, 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 the more the time, the better the epidermis looks. But most importantly, you have uh, transgenic epidermis and expression of normal level of laminate fine, which is comparable to a normal control. We have analyzed in the last, uh, the paper just came out, actually, on the five years follow-up, every single parameters of the epidermis. We have normal, normal appearance of the epidermis, we have uh, normal expression of the involucrin, for instance, that, or, or keratin 10, that are markers of differentiation, we have normal expression of keratin 14 in the basal layer. We have presence of Langerhans cells. We have nanocytes. We have Merkel cells. Uh, we have P63, that go back to this, is quite important. P63, as I said, for the cornea, also for the skin, is important for the stem cells uh, maintenance. The only real difference we saw uh, as compared to a normal skin is that there is a decreased amount of elastin and of elastin fibers that probably has nothing to do with the graft itself, with the transgenic epidermis, it's to do with the years of inflammation or, or, and fibrosis, sometimes inflammation that the patients had during his initial seven years of life. And, and also the wound dealing is, uh, is normal. As you can see, so so the bottom line of the story is that we did not see a, a single blister developing the transplanted area. We have normal wound healing upon injury. We have no adverse event, uh, uh, despite the amount of skin we transplanted. We have no pain or itch. We have normal mechanosection, normal nociception. We have no need for ointment or creams. Uh, we have dyschromia, as, uh, as you saw from the special in the back, and we can go back to this. If you want to this later in the discussion, there are reasons for the dyschromia and a decreased amount of elastin fiber. Uh, somehow, Azan was paying us back uh, because he was uh, very instrumental, I should say, in trying to uh, understand more about the biology of our epidermis themselves. In which sense? Well, there were some debates still in the literature whether uh, the mammalian 
these experiments were mainly done in, in mice, obviously, but uh, my lineage tracing, all sorts of techniques. Whether the mammalian skin is sustained by a population of stem cells and by transient progenitors and by temporary genetic cells as in the hematopoietic system, or if we have a single class of a progenitor that stochastically give rise to supra-basal temporarily differentiated keratinocytes, or whether we have a population resting and activated stem cells, uh, you can also call committed progenitors, that give rise to the temporary differentiated cells, or if we have a mixture of this, where you have a long-lived stem cell, a short-lived or activated stem cells, then you have progenitors, and then you have temporary differentiated cells. Well, since the epidermis of Azan is uh, transgenic, we and the tool now to try to solve this issue, at least with the mammalian, with the human epidermis. And in order to explain this, I have to go back to a different type of chlorogenic cells we have in the, in the... If you take those chlorogenic keratinocytes I showed you at the beginning, you can isolate those clones, and you can identify three types of clones that are holoclones, meroclones, and paraclones, originally identified by Baradone Green in, in 1887. For many data, we, uh, 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 you can distinguish those clones by the level of expression, not the expression itself, but the level of expression of delta and alpha that is very highly expressed in clones that progressively decrease during clonal conversion. We have evidence that the oroclones, we have the stem cells of the uh, squamous epithelia because of indirect evidence, not direct, indirect evidence showing that, for instance, if you lack those oroclone forming cells, you don't have long lasting epidermis. But again, that was a, a sort of indirect evidence. Now, with the tool to, 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 to see whether this is true or not. How? By clonal tracing. As I told you, every single chlorogenic keratinocytes give rise to a colony. When we make gene therapy with retroviral vectors, we have a random integration of the transgene into the genome. And the chances that you have the same, very same integration in two different chlorogenic cells is almost impossible. So by, by studying the integration, by analyzing the cells at the single cell level, we can analyze different clones with identified by the specific integration. And those are the clones that once they are together, they make up the epidermal sheet that you transplant into the patient. And as I said, you can analyze this at a single cell level by make clonal analysis. So you can take every single chronogenic cells, put them in the in, in, in a dish as a single cell, isolate the clones, and by making the clonal analysis, identify those clones as holoclones, meroclones, and paraclones. But this time, the holoclone the meroclone and the paraclones, they can identify because of the cloning of the integration.
So those are the graphs that we put on the patient. And what we show, what we discovered during time, those skin, it gets to monoclonality towards integration belonging to the holocrons. And how did we show this? Because if we make a biopsy of the regenerative skin, let, let's say four months or eight months, and we analyze the regenerated skin at the single cell level by making clonal analysis, what we found is that we do have the same population of clones, holocrons, medical and paraclones, but all of them, they have the same integration of the founding holocrons. In other words, during time, and we can see this through the integration, the integration of the metoclone and the paraclone, they go down, they are lost, but not the integration of the holocrons. They, 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 they stay stable during time, and during the epidemic regeneration, they give rise to new waves of metoclone and paraclones that originate from the holocrons. So this chronal tracing gave us a, an ambiguous proof that uh, the human epidermis is sustained by a population of resting and activated, can be activated, long-lived stem cells that they generate short-lived progenitors that eventually generate terminally differentiated keratinocytes. But now we can formally prove by direct evidence that those stem cells are the holocrone forming cells because they are the only cell type that we find during the regeneration and the time regeneration. And then the metagrone and the paragrones that we can isolate also from a, a, a directly from the skin biopsy are basically short-lived progenitors. So I told you at the beginning that it was changing our strategy because with this tremendous amount of data in our hands, we went back to the EMA and asked a protocol advice because the disease is very rare and it's very severe. So uh, by putting all the data together, the, the EMA uh, was agreeing in sort of jumping the phase one and phase two trial and go directly to a phase two, phase three trial uh, try to speed up a little bit the approval of this therapy. And in these weeks, uh, in, this, uh, in, in these months, in the beginning of 2022, we will start a multicenter European uh, phase two, phase three clinical trial uh, in, in, in collaboration with, uh, with a center in, in, in France, in Germany, and in Italy. Meanwhile, we will try to tackle also the recessive dystrophy TB using the very same approach. But it's a different disease because a different gene is a different blister, is a, diff is a different situation. And we did this in collaboration with John Bauer in Salzburg. And uh, uh, we have a phase one and phase two trial, which is still unpublished. And the bottom line of this initial outcome is the following. So it's not as good as junction TB. Instead of aiming at one year follow-up, one year follow-up, a complete restoration of collagen seven expression with a mosaic, 
which is no good. And uh, if we make a laser capture, PCR analysis, on the positive session, we do see the transgene. But if we do laser capture, PCR analysis underneath the negative area, we have no transgene. And the same thing is with the anchoring fibers. So the good news is that we have no adverse events, and we do have long-term collagen cell expression. The bad news is that we have mosaic expression and mosaic epidermal restoration. That for a complicated therapy like gene therapy is not satisfying, at least to me. We want to have the same result as we have in junction. It is true that the patient is telling us that they have less blister, uh, they, they heal faster. So overall, the situation with transplanted skin is better, but didn't change substantially the nature of the lesions in the skin. So we have to understand why this happens, why it doesn't happen with junction lipid. In order to do this, we have to go back to the lab, to basic science. And I try to summarize in the next few slides two complicated and long stories that probably gave us the answer. What we discover is that the, and in order to understand this, we have to go back to the junction lipid. And this was the work done by Laura de Rosa in the Lesia what, what, what they discovered is that the interaction of laminin 5 with integrin alpha 6 beta 4 is instrumental in keeping YAP in the nucleus. And nuclear YAP is essential for the maintenance of epidermal stem cells. In fact, during clonal conversion, we have a decrease of total YAP, you see almost superimposable to PCC3 alpha. But if you go a little bit more in detail, you see the nuclear YAP, which is the active YAP, is a much better identify oropron, much better than PCC3. It's basically negative metoprolol and paracron. While cytoplasmic YAP, which is inactive, increase during clonal conversion from oropron to paracron. And in fact, if we downregulate YAP, we do not abolish the progenitors, but we abolish only the holocrons, only the stem cells. And if we upregulate the up, we block the clonal conversion and we keep the holocrons stable. So it's essential for epidermal stem cells. And the YAP pathway is, is altered in the junction of the because of this interaction, laminin 5, like 6, 4. In fact, if you look here, this is recessive dystrophic injunctionally B. Injunctionally B, we have down regulation of the app of TATS and of P63. And by gene therapy, we can rescue this. You see, this is injunctionally B at passage two. We have already a decrease in the percentage of holocrons. These red bars are the holocrons. By passage number six, the stem cells are completely gone. But if we do gene therapy, then we keep and preserve the stem cells. So in junction B, we have cytoplasmic localization of YAP, progressive stem cell depletion. And if we do gene therapy, 
fast enough, we can rescue epidermal stem cells. And you can see this also in vivo. This is Claudio and this is Azan. You see both in Claudio and in, in Azan, we have YAP was basically cytoplasmic, but after gene therapy, we have nuclear localization of YAP and restoration of also of p 60 And we went on in trying to understand what was the mechanism underlying this interaction by doing single cellular genetic analysis. This was made again by Alessia by NIH in collaboration with all the bioinformatic people uh, in the, my university by doing single cell analysis. And I won't come to, to bother you with the, all the different uh, clouds and population of cells uh, that we have identified oropro, metacron, paraclones, uh, and the chromogenic markers, the oropro markers, we did a lot of work on this. What was important, what we found that downstream of YAP, there's a transcription factor, FOXN1, that again is expressed in oroclones and not in metacron and in paraclone, that reproduce what is happening with YAP. By FOX ablation, FOX ablation, we have uh, ablation of oroclones, but not of the progenitors. And by enforced FOXM1, we don't create new stem cells, we don't create new oroclones, but we stop chronic conversion and we preserve the population of stem cells of oroclone forming cells. And again, injunctionally B, this is what happens. Injunctionally B, we have a decrease of the, of the oroclones by both gene therapy or Overexpression of oxygen one keep the stem cells at a normal level after uh, gene correction. So we have a YAP foxen one dependent stem cell depletion in gen that is rescued by gene therapy. This pathway here is working in junctional in me, but it's not working in dystrophic in me. So what we think is going on in the mosaic problem that we have in dystrophy is a competition problem. In other words, when we do gene therapy with the lab 3 gene, since we rescue the long-term repopulating stem cells, at the end of the story, the entire epidermis will be formed by the genetically corrected cells. But this will, does not happen with collagen 7, where we do still have competition between transduced and untransduced cells. So in order to solve this, we had to go and do again at the clonal level and try to understand what really we were transplanting on these patients in the first initial, I should say a little bit probably too optimistic phase one and phase two trial. And with the vector we were using, we had approximately 75% efficiency in collagen 7 gene correction, which is quite high, but it's not 100%, which is difficult also to have 100% because collagen 7 is 9.2 kilobases. On the top of this, collagen 7 CDNA is quite a difficult uh, gene to manage because it, it, it is a lot of collagenous repeats. So it, it is easy to have recombinants. So we analyze those recombinants at the clonal level. And what we discovered by analyzing all the single chronogenic cells, because obviously 
the potential recombinants, you cannot see this in a mass, uh, in a bulk population. You, you have to go to clinical, clinical analysis. We saw that approximately 25% of the clones that were forming the graft contain recombinant collagen 7, not full length, and only about 50% of the clones were containing full length collagen 7. So we have, let's say, about 50% G correction. So we decided to stop the trial, uh, taking out of the trial the good that we could take. So no adverse event and uh, the possibility of having long-term expression of collagen 7. Change completely the vector. We uh, uh, designed this, a, a new single vector that is now over 95% efficiency, but we change also completely the way of transducing the cells by doing two rounds of division, by, by the, the combination of a higher efficiency of the single vector together with a two rounds of infection. Now, Every single clone that we analyze at least get one full length copy of the collagen seven. The price we are paying for this is the number of vector copy number, because in the old vector we have approximately one vector, one, 1.5 as an average vector copy number per cell, we have approximately four. But again, it's counterbalanced by the fact that in principle, this is a single retroviral vector and not a classical old style retroviral vector. So, with this in mind, we think that at least the, pro the problem of the competition should be solved. And so, we expect that by doing uh, the trial now with collagen 7 using this newly developed vector, we should be able to eliminate the competition and to have a regeneration of the epidermis with complete restoration of collagen 7 as it happens with the laminate 5. And uh, with this in mind, this year, 2022, we will ask for a new clinical trial, again, multi-center European clinical trial uh, with Italy, uh, Germany, Austria, and France using uh, this vector to avoid cell competition. Uh, it's basically all I wanted to tell you, uh, hoping that you got the main message, especially for the young, for the young people, for the PhD students, the message that you need to combine a lot of basic science if you want to do proper regenerative medicine using appropriate stem cells with appropriate uh, definition and characterization of the type of cells that you are using. And this basically was it happening with the hematopoietic system. The spectacular results that people are having with the gene therapy of hematopoietic cells is because there is a, a lot of basic uh, background in the hematopoietic system. I, I, I just want to finish by uh, by telling you uh, that we want to approach the problem of the butterfly children at 360 degree. 
everything I show to you today, it can be applied to um, recessive uh, forms of the disease compound, the heterozygous compound, recessively inherited form of the disease, not for the dominant. And about 50% of EB, they are dominant, especially the patients with simplex EB. But within the family of simplex EB, there are patients that are severe forms of EB. So you cannot do gene addition these patients because the mutation is dominant. So in this case, we have already evidence, still unpublished evidence, that we can use uh, gene correction, so gene editing using the, the newly, the primary knows, CRISPR-Cas9, uh, uh, to make up a transgenic epidemics where we have gene correction instead of gene replacement. And I want to thank, to finish this uh, by mentioning the people uh, that, I, actually the, this line is more dedicated specifically to uh, the story of Azan, that believe me guys was a really enterprise of, because for, for, for months all the people in the Center for Regenerative Medicine were completely devoted to try to uh, solve the problem of Azan. A special thanks go to Graziella Pellegrini, that she was extremely useful for the translation of part, especially in the operating room together with the surgeons. Uh, Sergio Bonanza is a technician that works with me since almost 35 years now. And he was the guy that was growing the sense of Azan, Laura, Elena, Roberta, and Alessia would analyze all the cells before and after grafting. And uh, the, the collaboration with the group of Silvio Bicciato, Oriana, and Mattia that were uh, here, together, together with uh, Michele Morgante and Davide Scaglione, and also Enrico and Elena, uh, uh, were, were helping us a lot in the clonal tracing of the study of the integrations, um, the clonal tracing, the identification of different clonal types based on the site-specific integration of the transgene. And obviously, uh, the clinical group of, uh, uh, of people in, uh, in Bokum, uh, Tobias Hirsch, the surgeon that did all the, uh, uh, together with us, all the, all the transplantation. Uh, although I want to draw your attention to Tobias Reuters, uh, because this is what Tobias Reuters did is amazing, actually. If you, if you go to the supplementary appendix of the paper and you read the clinical history of those months where uh, it is amazing how Tobias was able to balance everything to keep him alive in very dramatic situation. Uh, so both Tobias Hirsch and Tobias Reuter was very, very important in doing this with the assistance of John Bauer for the, the dermatological point of view. And uh, with this, I thank you for your attention. I apologize for my Italian accent. I hope you understood everything and uh, I'm ready to take any question. That, that was spectacular and, and very inspiring. And I think uh, you made an excellent point that, um, that 
even if what you want to do at the end of the day is to help patients, it still requires a a foundation in fundamental basic science, fundamental developmental biology, and stem cell biology. And you've made that point uh, admirably. That's great. And a great take-home lesson for for all all the biologists who, uh, who, who attend these uh, attend these seminars. So anybody who has questions, please put it in the Q&A. We have a time for a few questions and I'll, I'll pitch them to Michelle. The first question that's come in is um, obviously to be able to do your transplants, you, you require uh, a lot of skin and monolayer, so to speak. Uh, how long does it take to, to grow those sheets for the transplantation? Well, you know, those cells are really spectacular. Uh, it brings a lot, of, a lot of experience with the birds. It's quite fixed time. It is approximately three weeks. So from, from the moment you take the biopsy, from the moment you have a graft ready to go, and at this point, it doesn't matter whether it's one graft or 10 grafts or 50 grafts, because it's just the second step, amplification step that is different. In any case, it takes about three weeks. In the case of gene therapy, you need uh, sort of a week more because you have to introduce the step of gene correction. So, for instance, for the cornea, is about three weeks. For the gene therapy, is about four weeks from the moment you take up the biopsy. Great. All right. Um, another question is, and you've answered this partially, but uh, you, you talked a good deal about how various clones can out can outcompete each other, and how dystrophic EB was a little bit different than Claudio with junctional EB. How is it that uh, the question is how is it that your donor uh, epithelial stem cells were not outcompeted by Claudio's own? Epidermal stem cells, or did they outcompete those? Why didn't over time? Why did not his own endogenous flawed oh, outcompete? Oh, your 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 question is uh, why the transplanted area in the leg of Claudio did not expand? No, why uh, the the I, I think the question is. Uh, obviously, his own—he's generating his own uh, uh, epithelial stem cells that are genetically flawed. Did your transplant suppress them, outcompete them? Well, you no, no, no. You see, you see, when 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 you transplant this, uh, you remove completely everything. It's like it's like in the hematopoietic system. Okay. If you if you want to do a bone marrow transplantation to transplant the hematopoietic system, you hematopoietic stem cells for the leukemia, for instance, you have to do neural ablation. So you have to make room. Right. This is what we do. So we remove everything. So what what you transplant is your graft. So in this moment, there is no competition. Okay. And. In the junction with me, there is no competition for two reasons. One is that because the efficiency of transduction, it is uh, very, very high. It's over 90%. 
Second, because uh, in any case, the, the transduced cells, they have a selective advantage on the wild type cells. Okay. With the dystrophic, you are putting a graft where already in the graft there is a competition. You see, that's the problem. What is strange though, and we didn't explain this, is the opposite. So we, we were expecting that the transplanted area in junction with me, they would expand laterally and substitute the region of the junctional skin flanking the transplanted area. But did this not, does not happen. Even after 15 years, we still have precisely the stamp, you know, the, the real area that has been transplanted and the cells are not moving out, probably because they sense that there are carotinocytes there and they don't invade uh, the remaining part of, of the skin. We were hoping actually that it would happen in junction with but it doesn't. Okay. The next question is, with overexpression of the FOXM1 gene, does it reduce the differentiation of the transgenic stem cells? I guess, does it alter the, the differentiation, the, the transgenic stem cells, are they, is their differentiation fate altered in any way? No, really. I mean, what, what, what we found by, uh, by sustaining the expression of Foxing one is that we simply stop clonal conversion. We did not create new stem cells. Uh, you see, when, when you keep growing those, what, those in serial cultivation, you have, during time, a, progress, a progressive depletion of holoclones. And at the end, you will have a replicative senescence because all the clones become meroclones and paraclones. And at the end, you have an exhaustion of the proliferative potential. It may take six months or 20 passengers. Usually, before getting into replicative senescence, this says they do 150, 180 cell doublings. By overexpressing FOX, uh, we stop the chronic conversion. So, uh, and the percentage of holoconforming cells remain stable during the passengers, and the cells keep, keep growing. But but, but, but the epidermis that is made, from what we can see obviously in vitro, does not have any alteration of the markers of differentiation. Uh, it behaves normal. It just stops the clonal conversion. And the same things happen with, with the apaction. Another question is, obviously you're doing autologous grafting into the patients. What What... More globally, what are your immune uh, considerations when you do these procedures? Uh, must it always be autologous? Or are there any concerns where you would ever need to try to do immunosuppression or anything at all like that? Well, you know, uh, there are two aspects of this. One is the cells, one is the transgene. Mm -hmm. uh, concerning the cells, the cardiocytes, forget about using allogeneic keratinocytes. The allogeneic keratinocytes, they are not accepted by the, by the organism. They don't even engraft. People have tried that. They've tried that for, for thickness burn, 
they have tried that also for the uh, severe corneal lesion. You have to forget about the use of allogeneic keratinocytes if you, are, if you want to have a permanent engraftment and long-term regeneration. For the trans gene, uh, we have, obviously, during the, during the trials, we have, we have evaluated all the immunological parameters and we never find any sign of, of uh, autoimmunity uh, related or directed to the trust gene. With the with laminin 5, there was no sign for, for, for this. So we will analyze this also, though, for the, for the collagen 7, of course. For the collagen 7, uh, we will carefully analyze during the trial uh, the, uh, the onset of the potential altimunity. As a matter of fact, at the beginning, we will select only patients that they have a minimal, minimal expression of collagen seven. We will not include in the beginning uh, a double knockout, for instance, where there is complete absence of the protein. It is something that we will, we will address a, a little bit later on. So we, we try to minimize a potential autoimmunity towards the, the collagen seven. Great, thank you. I think we're down to our last two questions, and then we'll let you go. Um, given that EB is a congenital disease that is present even in the newborn period and is, and is so devastating, do you envision being able to go even earlier and earlier in your gene therapy approach? Well, you know, I, I thank you for this question, because this is always a matter of discussion with regulatory authorities. Uh, the way I see it is that, yes, the answer is absolutely yes. This is a pediatric disease and the, the, uh, the sooner you, you treat the patients, the better it is for a number of reasons. One is that the amount of skin that you have to make is lower because the kid is small. Two, the quality of the epidermal stem cells, by definition, is better. Three, you minimize as much as you can the chronic inflammation, inflammation and in the case of the strophic, also the scarring that you can uh, go through if you uh, treat these patients too late. Obviously, it cannot be too early. Uh, because you have to make sure that that the uh, the patients is suitable for that type of of treatment. Remember that these patients they also have internal lesions. You know they have problems in the esophagus, in the oral mucosa, in the upper airways. And in this case, in some cases of some of some form of the disease, those internal lesions are very uh, are, are very severe, and, and so. Uh, uh, those are patients that probably cannot benefit from the skin. So you have to wait a little bit to see how developed the disease in the first few months or one year, two years of life. And then though, to me, once you've done that, the sooner you do, the better it is for the patient and also for the, uh, for the therapy, for the stem cells and for everything. And 
obviously, you don't need to do such a dramatic surgery that we did for Azan. We were forced to do that gigantic operations because Azan, Azan was dying. But if you can control the disease from the beginning, you can progressively substitute the skin in the smaller operation in, I don't know, in one year, in two years. If the kids start developing the blister in the arm, instead of doing just the medication, you do the graft and the arm is fine. Then two months later, you do the other arm and, and so on. In order to have a more, less aggressive type of surgery. That's the way I see it at the end of the story. And this is the last question. And I'm sure you had to answer this for all the regulatory hurdles you had to go through. Are there any neoplastic considerations, any concern about uh, down the line, there being any kind of uh, uh, neoplastic transformation, particularly from the engineered stem cells? Yeah, that's we absolutely. We always ask, we are making big monitor of, of this. These patients, even though they are transplanted, uh, we have a formally approved uh, trial which is called observational uh, low intervention study. We are going to follow these patients for decades. Right. Uh, but let me tell you this. Hundreds of patients that we have treated, hundreds of patients that we treated for the birds with cell therapy, we never observed the occurrence of a squamous cell carcinoma or any type of carcinoma due to the graft. And this is over a 30 years follow. For the transgenic cells, obviously, it's probably too early, but remember that we have the first patients with 15 years follow-up, second one, the last one with five years follow-up. And although there are only three patients, you have, I think that we should think in a different way. We have transplanted of these patients something in the range of 10 to the eight to 10 to the nine Chronogenic cells. Mm-hmm. So, which is approximately, if I remember correctly, 10 to 20 times more the number of cells you transplant in a bone marrow transplant in the hematopoietic system. It's a tremendous amount of chronogenic cells. And those cells, they renew the epidermis constantly. We never saw anything. We never saw, and, and in the skin, you immediately see it because it's, it's out. So if there is a problem or a clone emerging or any type of problem, you can immediately see it. It can immediately be removed. Right. But we didn't see it. And on the top of this, remember another thing that these patients, the generalized junction or the generalized dystrophy, especially generalized dystrophy, they invariably develop squamous cell carcinoma. Very aggressive, highly metastatic. Usually, those patients, they don't die when they are kids, they, they get to adulthood. They die because of the squamous cell carcinoma. So, probably, although we have no proof of this, probably we are actually decreasing mm-hmm. by, by putting together everything, by 
putting together the physiology of the epidermis, the, the adhesion, polyvectin decreases the risk of scoliosis. Okay. With your permission, one last question came in, and it's, okay. it's a little speculative the way you just talked about, because you, you, your, your follow-up obviously hasn't been long enough to answer this question, but the questioner wondered, can the transplanted skin repair itself? And will it undergo all of the changes that one sees as a patient ages, including stretch? And uh, in other words, will it now repair itself, but also age as the endogenous skin would age? Well, yeah. Well, the answer is yes, actually, because you see, we know this from the birds, because the birds, they have already 30 years follow-up, and right. they behave like, you know, uh, no, in the birds is a little bit more tricky because you don't have a real dermis. You have a scar, so this epidermis is over a scar. So it is not easy to judge the aging the way you, you think of. Uh, for the transgenic in the EB, yes, we have not enough timing to see this, except in the first patient, um, and we will define this during during time. Uh, I, I would not expect a big difference, though. I would not expect, and even based on the experience we had with the birds, but the time will tell us. Right. Well, this has been terrific, Michelle, and. Uh, I think it's also wonderful that you began your talk with an, an acknowledgement of, of Howard Green's contribution so many years ago to the entire field of regenerative medicine before it was called regenerative medicine. So, well, you see, Howard Green was my, my mentor for, for years. I, I, still, I still remember that weekly or monthly call that Howard was, was giving me for 20 years because he wanted <laughs> Follow to follow all the clinical application. So it was really it was really better for me, and uh, and uh, I really regret. I mean that, that he couldn't see uh, the story of Azan because he died. Uh, he died in 2015. So right at the time that we were thinking of doing. So I, I, I'm really sorry that he couldn't say this. That, that is, for him, it wouldn't be very important. Well, he, he was the intellectual inspiration for many of us in our field. So Absolutely. 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 Thanks so much, Michelle. And yeah. uh, this was wonderful. Have a Thank good you. rest of the day, everybody. And see you next month. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.